0: Hello and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is always more life. It's good to be with you' all here this morning. Erica and I just celebrated four years of marriage on Thursday. Thank you, thank you. We did, we've done it so long. I'm. Is, is this the point where my marriage advice now carries weight? Like, what's? When does the threshold happen that my advice now is meaningful and not just some dumb kid coming up with an opinion? I hope it's now. But it's it's good to be with y'all here this morning as we conclude our series on Ecclesiastes, as we've been calling it, the open-handed life looking at the, the word hevel, the word meaninglessness in the book of Ecclesiastes, that it literally translates to smoke. And that just like you can't grab a hold of smoke, that you can try so desperately to do it, that the writer of Ecclesiastes says we can't grab on to the smoke. And so why are we trying so desperately to grab on to it? And so we are called it our open-handed life to say, instead of trying to grasp onto it, Let's have an open-handed life. Let's have an open hand as we see the smoke around us. And as Bert mentioned earlier, there's kind of two different voices here in the book of Ecclesiastes. You have the frame author in the beginning and the end, and then you have the teacher, the Quaheleth, as it's in Hebrew. And these two different voices, we're going to see, we're going to read from the frame author at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you, wanna, if you have your Bibles with you and you want to open up, otherwise it will be on the screen, not screens. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 8 through 14. This is the frame author, and it says, he says this. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. Keep in mind, the teacher was considered wise. And he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many Proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truth clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. As we can see here, this is the frame author, and he gives a pretty strong critique against Quaheleth, or the teacher. He says at the very end, in the last two verses, that this is my final word. In light of everything that the teacher has said, this is what we are to do in response. And let's pull that up again, verse 13. That's the whole story. Here is my final conclusion. In light of everything in this whole book, in light of everything the teacher has taught you, this is the final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. That this is the final word. In light of everything, this is what you are to do. And so let's look into what The frame author wants us to get out of that. This is the final word he wants us to have from the book of Ecclesiastes. And the first is this, fear God. To fear God. And so what does it mean to fear God? I think we have a lot of misconceptions about what it means to fear the Lord. It's it's a common refrain we see, especially in the Old Testament. I know growing up it was something I really struggled with. Uh, Does this mean that I have to be terrified of God, almost like a dog being afraid of thunder? Is that what the Scripture is getting at when it says to fear God? That I'm supposed to be terrified of this deity? That God is this terrifying taskmaster, that I need to submit myself in obedience to Him because of how scary He is? Is that what it means to fear God? Someone that I need to grovel before? I don't think that's what Scripture is getting at here when it talks about the fear of the Lord or when it says to fear God. Kind of what I interpret that as, it's this sense of awe and wonder and reverence before the divine being. This sense of awe and wonder and reverence. We have this paradox in our faith. Our faith is full of paradoxes where we hold these two truths that seem to be contradictory, but... Their intention with one another, and we find that we need to have both, and we can't have one or the other. That Jesus says, "You are a friend of God," and at the same time, we have this other tension that we are to fear the Lord. We're to have this reverence and awe and wonder of who He is, and yet this great God of the universe is also the one who calls us His friend. And how we need to have both intention with one another to fear the Lord. To recognize who God is and give Him the right priority in our lives. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And why is that? Because the root of wisdom is knowing that we are not God and that we don't have everything together. Proverbs is saying that fear of the Lord, recognizing that there is a being greater than us, that there is someone out there who is wiser than us, who is stronger than us, and that is the beginning of wisdom, recognizing that you are not always right, recognizing that I am not always right, that there, that is the foundation of wisdom, is recognizing that there is a God and we are not him. If you look at the first three commandments in the Ten Commandments, it starts off, number one, I am Yahweh your God. It starts off with a declaration that the first commandment is that I am your God. second commandment is do not worship any other gods. Don't put any other gods before me. And then the third, don't have any idols. Now, there's the first three commandments that God gives to Moses in the Ten Commandments all have to do with what does it look like to fear the Lord to recognize that He is your God, to put nothing else before Him, and don't make idols, don't make graven images to replace the Lord your God. Fear of the Lord means giving God the first and primary spot in our lives and then ordering the rest of our lives around it, not the other way around. So many times I think we try to fit God in between the cracks of our lives Rather than giving him the primariness of our lives and then filling everything else in the cracks. Scripture talks about giving of God the first fruits of our creation. That when you would go to the temple, when the first harvest, the first fruits was the best fruits of that year. And Scripture commanded the people in the Old Testament to give that to the Lord, to give of your very best to the Lord, not to give the scraps at the end of the harvest and then go and give that to the Lord. He said, Go and give your first fruits to the Lord, to give of your best to God because of who He is and what He has done for us. The fear of the Lord is recognizing who God is and giving Him the space He deserves in our lives. One of my favorite TV shows is The West Wing. Uh, I just love it so much. I love the drama in it. It's one of my favorite shows. Erica can't stand it because she says it's so political, all they do is talk. And she just hates all the talking in it. She says, why, why are they talking so much? I love it. It's one of my favorite shows. <laughs> and one of my favorite episodes is actually the pilot episode. And what's really cool, the way that the scriptwriter does it, is the president doesn't show up on the scene until the last ten minutes of the episode. And in the beginning, it just opens up with like a bunch of chaos, and there's just noise and chaos all around, and there's people fluttering about trying to solve this crisis or that crisis, and the president is nowhere to be seen until finally, right at the end of the TV show, the president shows up on screen. When the president shows up on screen, the chaos stops, the bickering and the arguing stops. Because the president has walked into the room, and everyone gives the president the respect he deserves. And the fear of the Lord is kind of like that, that we recognize who God is, and his role in the universe, and his primacy in the universe, and his primacy in our lives. And so when when God walks into the room, we stop. We give him our very best, and we give him the reverence and awe that he deserves. Isaiah 40, 15 through 17, says this, No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though they were a grain of sand. All the woods of Lebanon's forests and all of Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God the nations of the world are nothing to him in his eyes they count for less than nothing mere emptiness and froth i just love that passage because it just shows the mightiness of our god that the mighty nations of the world, that the, the things that they would have been the most terrified of in ancient Israel, these scary nations that could come in at a moment's notice and conquer and kill them all, that to the Lord they are nothing, emptiness, mere froth. That when we say fear the Lord, we mean give reverence to this God. Put Him in His rightful place in our lives. The second part from the author At the end of Ecclesiastes, not only to fear the Lord, it's fear the Lord and obey his commandments. Fear the Lord and obey his commandments. So the second thing we need to take out of this is that the importance of obedience in the Christian life. The importance of obedience in the Christian life. Jesus hints, not hints, he straight up talks about the importance of obedience in his gospel the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus says this, If you love me, obey my commandments. Let's read that again. If you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. If you love me, what does he say? If you love me, obey my commandments. Jesus makes this explicit link that there is a link between our expression of loving the Lord and obedience to him that they're not two separate things, but obedience to the Lord is a way that we express our love for Him. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. We listen or we talk a lot about love languages, especially I do when I have done premarital counseling, and the importance of giving your partner the love language that uh, they need. And so for mine, it's words of affirmation. So I say, hey, Erica, it's time for you to compliment me. I'm feeling pretty down. Erica's love language is quality time, and so it's important for me to take time out of my day to spend quality time with her. Uh, I was listening to the sermon from this one pastor who was talking about obedience. His name's Mike Pilavacci. He's a British pastor over in England. And he said that obedience, obedience is the love language of God obedience is the love language of God, that there's this explicit link between the way that we express our love for the Lord is through our obedience to Him and His commandments. And so does the writer of Ecclesiastes make this link, fear God and obey His commandments. We often think of commandments as like the rules about how to have a boring life, and that's not the case at all. The way the commandments are structured in our lives is that they are guardrails to keep us on the right path. That they're not there to say you can't have any fun, but they're there to say this is the path that leads to life and these guardrails are to keep you from going on the path that leads to death. That sin does not lead to a life of fulfillment. but fear of the Lord and obedience to Him does lead to one of fulfillment. In my Theology John Wesley class, my professor said that Wesley had this belief that the commandments of God are his promises, that the commandments of God are his promises, because if God commands us to do something, it's a promise that he will give us the grace to be able to do it, that the commandments of God are his promise of a future grace to us in our lives. That God is with us in the middle of our obedience. I hesitate to share this story. Uh, I wrestled with it for a few days, and I just I felt the Lord tell me to share it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share it with y'all. Uh, when I was in seminary, they had this uh, guest speaker come in, and he was talking about the importance of obeying the Lord. And he was telling a story about how he was uh, in sort of a very, very wealthy area in Alabama. And the Lord called him to go to an old abandoned coal mining town and be a pastor there and do ministry there. And he talks about how he obeyed the call of God on his life and how he went and how the Lord had really transformed that community. Now, at the end of his sermon, he gave a call and he said, what is it that you haven't given to the Lord yet? And I remember I was like, all right, God, let's do this cool exercise. You know, I'm here in seminary. I've clearly given you everything. And so he said, just spend time with the Lord in prayer. And the Lord very clearly said to me, Jeremy, you haven't given me everything. I said, Jesus, what are you talking about? That's crazy. I'm here at seminary. Like, I'm going to be a pastor. What more do I have to give you? This is nonsense. And he said, you haven't given me where you're going to do ministry at. And so I said, okay, Lord, let me give that to you. So I went to the altar, and I laid that at the Lord's feet. And then the strangest thing happened is that I I feel called to be a church planner. I don't know if I've mentioned that before, but that's sort of a future call of my life. And a few days later, my brother calls me, and he said, hey, Jeremy, uh, you know that you've been feeling called to be a church planner? I was like, yeah. And he said, I had this vision the other day that I really want to tell you about. And he was in chapel at his undergrad, and he said he had this vision of the city of Seattle. And he said, the Lord said to me, my people are calling out to me, craving me. Whom shall I send to them? He said, Jeremy, I think God is calling us to plant a church in Seattle one day. In obedience to the Lord, obedience to the Lord means saying yes, even when it's hard what we find is when we say yes in the hard times is that he leads us into a better future for our lives. That we are to be a people who is obedient to the call of God in our lives. Radical obedience that can lead to the transformation of the world. Obedience that causes us to sacrifice Obedience that calls us to die to self. Obedience that calls us to say, Lord, you've given me everything. You've given me life. You've given me breath. you sent your son to die. What can I give to you? And Jesus says, just give me yourself. Give me of your very self. Give me all of yourself. Don't hold anything back. And so the call of obedience in our lives as Christians, what if we here in Kingwood... We're so radically obedient to God that the church of Jesus Christ made such an impact in this world that everyone was able to know in this community the kingdom work that was going on here because of our radical obedience to Jesus, our radical obedience to evangelism, radical obedience to going to the poor and the sick and the needy, radical obedience to going out into the community and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. What if we had that radical obedience to God? How much difference would that make in our society, in our neighborhood, in our community? True obedience to the Lord is dancing in the freedom of the Spirit of God. True obedience to the Lord is dancing in the freedom of the Spirit of God. And so the Lord calls us to fear Him respect Him, to have awe of Him, cause us to be obedient. And what's interesting in this passage too is it also tells us to be discerning of how we search for truth. To be discerning on how we search for truth. The end of the directive here, this little passage here at the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, it's a corrective on the teacher. It's a corrective on the Quaheleth. Uh, I'm going to be reading a few select passages from it to just kind of pull up that the, the frame author doesn't fully agree with the teacher. He says this, Keep in mind the teacher was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. Later in verse 10, The teacher, the teacher sought to find just the right words to express truth clearly. He was considered wise. The people thought him to be wise. But his conclusion at the end in thirteen fourteen, is a vastly different conclusion than what the author comes to. Because the frame author doesn't say everything is meaningless. That's what the teacher says. And so there's this corrective and even though this man was considered wise that we as Christians need to be careful and need to be discerning about how we come about to truth. The teacher was considered wise. The implication is that he really wasn't that wise. The critique is that he fails in his ultimate purpose to find meaning in life. That Throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher is trying to find what is the ultimate meaning of life. He says, it's meaningless, it's hevel, I can't find it. And you could consider the teacher a failure in his search for the meaning of life. That the teacher was considered wise. See, the teacher viewed all of life as under the curse. He saw the cursed nature of our reality, and he said, that must be all I can know and all I can see. This is the end-all, be-all. And he looked at all the reality of the world, and he despaired. And he had a negative view of life because he let his experience dictate his worldview rather than letting the Word of God dictate his worldview. Worldview is the lens through which we interpret the reality and events of our lives. And the corrective here at the author at the end of Ecclesiastes is one back to orthodoxy. To fear God and keep His commandments. Because this life is not Hevel. Because we serve a God who will judge the living and the dead. The challenge of Ecclesiastes is one of worldview. It's worldview. It's the lens through which we interpret our life. And so we need to always be asking ourselves, is my outlook on life, is my lens through which I am interpreting the events of the reality around me, is that truly in line with Scripture? Or have I let my experience dictate my worldview? Are our lives truly in line with Scripture or are we so formed By the voices of the world, because our voices of the world are always trying to form and shape our thinking. We're always being formed by media, by social media by entertainment, we're being formed by politicians and political parties, formed by thinkers and influencers. We are constantly being pressured and formed by this world, and if we are passive to the formation of the world, then next thing we know, we will look like the world and not the church of Jesus Christ that we are to be a people of God who is discerning of the truth and is asking ourselves, is this way the world forming me? Is this truly the way that Jesus would form me or is it not? Romans 12, 1 through 2 says this. Paul is saying this to the church in Rome. The seat of the empire says this. Therefore, pleasing and perfect will do not conform to the patterns of this world one of the things that I found myself doing a few years ago is I I could notice that I was just being so formed by the voices that I was listening to I was being so formed by the influences that I had put in my life And I felt the Lord really push me to say, Jeremy, I want you to fast from those things. I want you to stop listening to those voices and to pour into the voice that I'm speaking into you. And so one year for Lent, I fasted from all social media because I knew that I was being formed by what was on those pages, and I was being formed by politics and these social media platforms, and I had to step away. And the Lord had to say, Jeremy, look at what you're consuming and look at how it's forming and shaping you. And so I had to cut myself off from the voices of the world and refocus back in on God. Even in my undergrad, you know, there were some voices that I listened to or that I heard. Um, when I first went to undergrad, I had some friends who were Calvinist. And that was my first experience with anyone who was Calvinist. I grew up Methodist. I frankly thought people who believed in Calvinism were extinct. I, I did not know any of them existed. All of my friends were Baptists or Catholic. None of them were Calvinists. And so I was shocked when I got to undergrad, and it was like, oh no, this is still something people believed. And I had a crisis of faith, Because this person had a a different worldview. It was still a Christian worldview, but it was kind of a skewed Christian worldview. And I had a crisis of faith. Is my worldview truly scriptural, or have I just been formed in such a way to think that it is? And so my friend challenged me to just go back into the scriptures, to just go back and re-examine, to re-look at what I truly thought to be true. And I had to step back And say, is this worldview in line with Scripture? And I found that yes, it was, which is why I'm a Methodist pastor and not um, a Presbyterian pastor. But when we look at ourselves and we look at our worldview, God has this tendency to change our worldview to be more in line with Him and His Spirit. God's changed my worldview on the nature of miracles and healing in the church on the nature of supernatural, to be more open to gifts of prophecy and gifts of healing and all those miraculous things. That was a worldview change that God had to do within my heart and within my soul. Because God is always forming and shaping us just like the world is. And the call of Ecclesiastes is a call to let God be the primary one who forms and shapes us, not the world. John Wesley has this famous quote, says, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condensed, condescended to teach me the way. For this very end he came from heaven, he hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that one book. At any price, give me the book of God, I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, here then I am, far from the busy ways of men. I sit down alone, only God is here, in his presence I open, I read his book, for this end to find the way to heaven. Friends, the call of God is for us to be people of one book, to be people of the Bible, be people who are so engrossed in scriptures, to be so formed by the Word of God and be formed by the living God, that we are transformed not just for our sake, but for the sake of the lost in our community, for the sake of the broken in our community, for the sake of those who are so in desperate need of healing, for those who so need a Savior to come and lift them out of the darkness. That is the call of God on our lives. That is the glorious call of God on our lives. And so let's be obedient to that call and follow him where he calls us to go. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.